Good afternoon. Uh, it's my very great pleasure uh, to introduce the Humanitas Visiting Professorship in Museums, Galleries and Libraries for 2014. Uh, our professor this year is Michael Govan, who is the director of the Los Angeles County Museum. Uh, despite his very evident youth, uh, he is a very experienced museum professional who began his career at the Guggenheim under Thomas Krenz from 1988 until uh, 1994. And this, of course, was the time of the great expansion of the Guggenheim, the export, as it were, of the Guggenheim brand throughout the world, notably to Frank Gehry's remarkable building in Bilbao, a new museum which was a spur to the economic regeneration of a post-industrial town, a route that many museums have subsequently followed. And a recent, and to my mind, hugely successful example uh, is the new Louvre at Lens, which I hope many of you have, have seen. From the Guggenheim, Michael went to the Dia Art Foundation in New York, a contemporary art initiative which was led by the de Menil, uh, family. It was, it must be said, in a parlous financial state when he arrived and he led the campaign to relocate the, uh, to a former Nabisco factory building at Beacon in the Hudson Valley. And that's been a huge success. He bought hungrily for the collection, which was twice the size when he left in 2006 than when he joined 12 years earlier. And it was his achievement in rethinking and repurposing the Deer Foundation which led to his appointment to uh, LACMA, uh, in 2006. Those of you who know that museum will appreciate the problems it presents. It's a campus museum with um, a whole a series of, may I say, rather disparate buildings spread over a substantial area. And clearly, since what Michael has done, which seems so extremely impressive to me, he's done much since 2006 to unify the campus, uh, and of course to raise the profile of the institution in Los Angeles where it has to compete with the Getty, MoCA, the North Simon Museum, among others, for cultural prominence. And for me, I'm allowed to embarrass him further, uh, one of his most remarkable achievements was the commission to Chris Burton, uh, I hope many of you have seen this, who created a remarkable installation of vintage street lamps from LA, which creates a much needed focus for access uh, to the entire site. It's a complex museum. It has many competing interests, not least those of powerful trustees, which include, I note, Barbara Streisand, um, who I'm told has recently given a, a sergeant to the, to the museum. I don't know how feisty a trustee she is. I imagine she may well be. Um, but <coughs> Michael has very skillfully negotiated and uh, with the trustee board and the museum is thriving. And he is therefore ideally placed to speak uh, this evening about the future of the art museum. His lecture this evening is entitled 
a view from the Pacific re-envisaging, <laughs> this is a terribly difficult word, re-envisaging, no, envisaging, envisaging, <laughs> okay. um, uh, thinking again about the, uh, about the, about the, about, about the art museum. Michael, you're on. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you for the kind words. I don't know about Young. Um, and I will now retitle the lecture. Anyway, it's a pleasure to be here, uh, and especially a pleasure to be here at the Ashmolean, which is one of the great museums of the world, not only the first public museum. I know there's some debate about that, but we will come down on the side <laughs> of the Ashmolean for tonight, at very least. Uh, and I thought, given that we are at this extraordinary place in thinking about public art museums, uh, the birthplace of public art museums, and one of the great museums. And just to say, Christopher, the work that's been done here to enlarge, reorganize, and reconsider this museum is, is amazing. And, uh, and I am one person who knows how hard it is to do all of that. So congratulations. Uh, to you and to all of you here for, for what's been done at this museum, which I've had a pleasure, it's been a pleasure to see, and I even got to sneak into the drawings cabinet, which is beyond amazing. Um, if this museum was the first of these big museums, we can debate their names, encyclopedic, general, museums of everything, teaching museums, um, LACMA's the last. In fact, uh, we were put on our, we were really on our side in our own building as an art museum in 1965. So I thought this was a moment to consider some contrast of location, therefore the view from the Pacific. Uh, the, the reason I was interested in traveling to Los Angeles to take on this role was because the museum had problems, as you're stating, it's a complicated and unresolved and, and in architecturally unloved place. Um, the collections are spotty because of the most recent nature of its development. And, uh, and, and also Los Angeles is not exactly a well-developed museum-going place. And so there is this newness and, in a sense, an obligation, I felt, to use this opportunity to reconsider the museum. Not that every museum should be reconsidered in the same way. I want to preface this by saying that. Uh, this museum is fantastic, and I will reference even the Metropolitan Museum and other places that I grew up on and loved. But it seems in the ecosystem of this thing called museum that there needs to be a little bit of, um, of experimentation, maybe even reconsideration. And Los Angeles is a good place to do that. So I will say, um, some, if not radical things, sort of extreme things about looking at things very differently, which is not a statement of what every museum should do, but what might be possible in rethinking, experimenting, that might have some value in the tradition of museums. Um, we're here in the Ashmolean, uh, beautiful uh, Greco-Roman facade. One of the things I like to say is that art is long, museums are short, in the sense that art has been around for 35,000 plus years, human beings have been making art in some fashion, um, visual arts. Museums have been around for a few hundred years. So we should not equate art and museums. Museums are a tool, a frame, a recent invention relative to art. 
And therefore, it's not unreasonable to imagine that they might be reconsidered and reconsidered and reconsidered in, a, in, a, in, in the present and in the future. And so today I'd like to take you through a little bit of that thinking from my perspective and overlay some general discussions about the museum, but also my personal perspective and how that was formed by some of the experiences in the museums uh, where I worked. And so I'll do a little bit in reverse order, uh, starting with Lachman, then going backwards at the end. But I do want to start with this. This is a picture of the Williams College Museum of Art. I went to Williams College rather than Oxford. Um, and this is the rotunda of what was Lawrence Hall, built in the mid-19th century. Um, you note the similarities of the ionic columns. In fact, this was built first as a library, and it is, in the sh it is a panop it was a panoptagon, meaning that there were uh, library, there were shelves that where the librarian sat in the middle, and there were shelves so the librarian could see everyone taking books out or returning them. This was like a lot of libraries and spaces built at this time, library, museums, similar things. There were cases for books, cases for objects, and eventually there were so many objects the library had to move out. Uh, there were so many books, and so this hall was left to the museum. Here you see it um, in its first installation when I was the acting curator there and just got out of school when we reopened uh, a new wing and placed, uh, rehung the older part of the museum. And you see in the very back uh, Assyrian reliefs that you have some similar ones. Uh, and in the center, uh, a work from the 1970s by Robert Morris, an American artist, a bed, a chair, and a table uh, that are electrically connected to batteries. So you wouldn't want to sit there. It's one way to keep visitors off the art. Um, but this was an attempt at that time to juxtapose old and new to use this frame and make it clear that this frame is of its own time. One of the things that I loved at Williams College, going to school at that college, was coming out of the art history department, where the, the new edition was designed by Charles Moore, and this isn't particularly pretty. It was subject to a lot of budget cuts, but at the back of the museum, when I walked out of the art history department to my art studio, because I was a double major in both, actually just took art history because I wanted to look at other examples of art, um, and I would each day uh, on this walk between art history and art studio see these ironic columns <laughs> made by Charles Moore, one of the great protagonists of what was called postmodern architecture, uh, known as Charles Jenks wrote for, for its reuse of historical motifs in new ways. They're ironic, of course, because they hold up nothing. Uh, our buildings are built in steel, and columns are applied as, by the way, they were often in many times as decorative elements. And so um, these, walking by these funny things, and they aren't particularly pretty, uh, made me think all the time about history and rethinking history and how the twisting, turning, flipping, reconsidering, creating space created opportunities for thinking in new ways. And so I, I, I would say both Lawrence Hall and these were inspirations architecturally. The Encyclopedic Art Museum hasn't really changed. I mean, we have all done a great job in expanding the frame of what's included in the encyclopedia. The Metropolitan Museum now shows modern art. It even has African art. Relatively recent additions, like with so we keep taking this idea of an encyclopedia and we make it more inclusive. 
But these fundamental ideas of what it is, for good or for bad, and we can discuss whether they should be changed, have not been reinvented, reconsidered, really since before the invention of the telephone, which changes communication. The camera, the easily available camera, which changes the nature of the distribution of images, and you can say, release this all the way to the internet. Or easy travel, which is also a recent phenomenon. The ability to get on a jet airplane and, and for not so much money travel around the world. Because of course these museums were made for their localities to present a universe when travel was not as easy. Curators would travel or explorers and bring things back to museums. Uh, that was the idea. So, Given how much the world has changed, it does, think, does seem to me that there needs to be some reconsideration of this framing device of the museum. And as I said, art has been around for, for a very long time, museums less so. So the Metropolitan Museum in 1880 is, for the United States, a landmark. Um, this is Wilshire Boulevard in Fairfax. The lower right corner is where the museum will be. This is 1922 in Los Angeles just a couple of airfields and dirt. Already this was one of the great museums of the world. 1930, same scene. Museum still doesn't exist on the right, but Los Angeles has exploded in growth. Um, like cities we see in Asia right now, perhaps, and the museum still doesn't exist, but it gives you a sense of how new this city is. Um, and that in itself is a, is a cause for reconsidering what a museum is that is born on this site in 1965 only. Um, in the image of Lincoln Center in New York, a, a real New York wannabe of culture, these buildings were proudly placed and new collections in the model of uh, this museum except with modern touches of design. <laughs> And so I asked the question, what could the museum be in Los Angeles in the 21st century and what, how, what, how might I think about that given experiences I've had? Um, there's the traditional way that we continue to make sense of buildings and make museums more user-friendly. So we added three buildings. There's one that's an entry pavilion on the bottom, which by the way is open air, a contemporary art museum on the left, and on the right, an exhibition pavilion, all designed by Renzo Piano and opened in 2008 and 2010, which make the museum much more user-friendly, um, create much better modern spaces for, for programs. Uh, we've doubled our campus in the last five years, doubled our exhibitions, and doubled our attendance. So those are the traditional modes of expansion, if you will, and, um, and we've made over 18,000 art acquisitions. So that's that sort of traditional model, expand, enlarge, make sense of. The next, but from the beginning, my thought was to actually reconsider this frame of the museum in different ways, to rethink it. Maybe in the end it won't come out so differently, but there was a lot of work going on to think about it differently. Um, when I wanted to start at LACMA, they had the, LACMA had the ugliest logo I could have ever imagined. And I, in fact, my first, I think the first day I asked for it just to be printed in gray on white stationery, just Los Angeles County Museum of Art, because I wouldn't, I refused to use the old logo. Then I hired five different professional designers. They all proposed changing the name. They didn't like the C, they didn't like LACMA, it sounded strange, couldn't they get the county out of it? I said, no, they give us a third of our budget every year, I can't take the C out. <laughs> and LAMA's not so great, and you know, nobody had a satisfaction, they gave me all kinds of ideas, none were satisfactory, so I called my friend, not uh, John Baldessari, the artist, 
And when I ever have a big problem, I always call an artist because of the way they think. And I said, can you help me out here? He's good with graphics. And so he produced, he asked me down to the studio a few days later and says, maybe I have something for you. The photograph, black and white, was taken in the 60s. Does anyone know what that gesture still is? Drawings department should. It's sighting for like drawing, right? You want to measure the tree and then, pr then you measure it down on your paper. And, <laughs> and he just, he took LACMA, put it in the, in the gray sky, the sky of Los Angeles, just the top of the palm tree, and underlined the LMEA. How simple is that? And I thought, what a marvelous way to simplify. No one had ever thought something so simple. LA, Los Angeles, and art, and it makes it symmetrical. Five letters, big sky. Um, and it worked out really well, and so I've, that risk was worth taking, and I, I've often gone to artists, and I've promised the museum that I would bring artists in, not to show their work inside the museum, we do that, but to actually have artists help consider the frame, the museum itself, the logo, the way things are done, uh, the, the means of installation. For the opening, John updated the image. These were the banners that were used on uh, the front of the building for the opening of the Broad Building in 2008 which showed the new tools of drawing on the right there with the iPhone. Um, we are so interested in globes. I was at the Science Museum and looking at globes and worlds and exploration and measure. Um, everything we do is biased, is culturally biased. There's, science is a complicated term when it comes to culture. Uh, you know, why is North up? Why don't we look at the world this way? When I was in art school, I was taught that when you are facing a problem or you're trying to come through a block, think of things differently. Turn them upside down, backwards, inside out. And so in a modest way, I'd like to think that one of the, I've used some of that same thinking at the uh, Los Angeles County Museum of Art, that backwards, uh, upside down, backwards, and inside out has been an inspiration. Um, John Baldessari, when I commissioned him to uh, be involved in one of our, the first exhibitions when I was there, curated by Stephanie Barron, on Magritte and contemporary art, and I thought, you know, well, maybe it could be enlivened with an artist's participation. So John Baldessari actually did the scenography for the show. The entire ceiling is LA freeways. Uh, the entire floor, blue sky and cloud. Turn the world upside down. And other artworks could be seen in this quite amazing environment. Uh, and then we bought the piece, the ceiling and the floor, which was then placed in the boardroom which I thought was a nice way to <laughs> sort of think about that. Another is uh, backwards, and, and at LACMA, contemporary art is up front, partly due to the donor, Eli Broad, who wanted his contemporary art museum up front. But I've always been suspicious of the idea of time working in one direction, and I had an interesting conversation with Philippe de Montebello, the, the director of the Met, and he said, well, the one thing about putting contemporary art museum and juxtaposing it with other objects is that time one thing is influenced by the other, but not the other way around. And I had to object because my personal sense of a thing of the past in a museum is that it is framed by interpretation always. It is never, you're never in that time. It seems to me it's very, that, that and as uh, T.S. Eliot, and this is one of my favorite quotes, just to say, he talks about the fact that every new work of art changes the way we look at the order of all things, and the past uh, it's not preposterous to find that the past should be altered by the present as much as the present is directed by the past. Now, it sounds counterintuitive, but when you really think about the fact that if you're a historian, history is always changing. <laughs> we are always rereading, rethinking. And I suggested that 
well, a traditional museum might be laid out with old art at the beginning, like the Metropolitan Museum, and then you'd find new art in the back left corner, you know, as you march through time. But that's not the way we exist in the world. I wake up every day, personally, in the present. And it takes a lot of work, research, thinking, comparative analysis. I can use a museum to construct what the past may have been or my idea of what the past could be. The museum is a tool to do that. Why doesn't it make more sense to organize a museum backwards with contemporary art, the present in the front, understand your circumstance, and then work backwards uh, to, to frame what it might be to imagine the past. And so the idea that contemporary art is in the front at LACMA, I find is not inappropriate or, or strange, but maybe makes some logical sense. Um, here's the Enlightenment Gallery at the British Museum with the globe as it's, it's uh, you know, in the center, every gallery or library has a globe to imagine the whole world. That's the notion of our encyclopedic museums. I was struck when there was a recent project by a German uh, artist, photographer, Andreas Gursky. He made a series of monumental images that are actually not, he's a photographer, sort of, but he uses digital imagery. He made his first photographs without using a camera by stitching together NASA images um, of the world, satellite images. He carefully erased all the clouds and he created this compass. This photograph is as big as this whole wall, probably even bigger. And I acquired a series of four of these to be an enclosed room because I imagined they were the perfect inside out. Instead of the globe in the center of the gallery, I would create a gallery where you were in the middle of the oceans. And of course the oceans are the space where there isn't culture. It's the land edges. And these pieces are kind of nice because they are snapshots in the sense that they're about coastlines and those coastlines will, will never be the same. So it is a moment in time. But that idea of the inside out and thinking of even the world differently, oceans, not land masses. Or thinking of in, uh, inside out in another way, commissioning artists to make major works outdoors in a park setting. This is Robert Irwin working with trees, palm trees, a collection of palm trees that function as sculpture. Um, so that when you're outside, you're actually in the museum. This is a only in Los Angeles kind of thing. Works really well. <laughs> I have a garden of palm trees to set up the idea of paradise. Uh, you know, for those of you who may not know, palm trees are mostly not native to Southern California. There's only one variety, and they were imported as a uh, sort of by the Chamber of Commerce to create the image of Los Angeles and California that we have. So Irwin is using these as a collection, like an encyclopedic collection of palms from around the world that express something both primordial as well as modern. Um, I loved seeing this beautiful new uh, old what do you call it, restored <laughs> version of the sculpture gallery with all the color um, of, of, of the walls. And this idea of beginning with classical art is so beautiful for a museum like this. Well, in Los Angeles, I thought, well, maybe it would be something completely different. And I'm not sure it would be, certainly wouldn't be the entrance. But I commissioned Jorge Pardo, who's an artist working in Los Angeles, uh, to help me reconsider our galleries for ancient American art figuring why not work with ancient American art. That's the territory in which we live. We were Mexican California. Um, we have the most extraordinary collections of pre-Columbian ancient American art. And I asked the artist to reinvent the display. So, so this is both sculpture and, um, and art, if you will. It's his sculpture. And when people said to me, well, that's such a terrible way to see art. It, it's not objective. 
meaning what's objective? A gray box with a square plexiglass top for objects that were taken out of burial sites meant for the netherworld and were underground and then brought in a station wagon to Los Angeles and put it in a museum in rectilinear rooms? That's objective? <laughs> That's not objective. There is a license one can take. We do it every day in our museums. And why not have a, a, that license taken with a thoughtful artist who is having a dialogue with that work of history, thinking about how, you know, maybe he's uh, it's this non-didactic, maybe it's a topographic metaphor. Several people said to me, it's like being underground, using color. There was so much color in those environments. We take it out usually in our museums. This is not a permanent installation. It's a temporary installation, but it was an attempt to also very much emphasize, you can't walk in the room and not be aware of the frame, that the museum is a framing device. And if you look here, um, all I ask is that the curator of colonial art, Mexican art, put a religious painting with a gold frame in that doorway. So that there's this idea of two worlds. And you can talk about conquest. It's so complicated even to look at that history. We did an exhibition that talks about the persistence of pre-Columbian themes and ancient American themes into colonial times and beyond. Um, and, and this just seemed a simpler way to talk about two languages. And on one world that was totally isolated, these ancient Americas, there's no Silk Road. There's no back and forth with any other cultures. This is developed in isolation. This isolation is an interesting thing. And the artist's artwork, the framing device, I think helps isolate it so that there's an emotional feeling that's relevant. It's non-didactic in a traditional sense, but it's very relevant and I think enhances seeing. Um, so, playing with this idea, and I thought, well, this is a great thing to play with because so much of our civilized history has to do with museums are a great metaphor for classification for all the history of our civilizations. So again, riffing on this beautiful, these fantastic uh, neoclassical architecture, um, we have Chris Burden's Urban Light, which Christopher was referring to, which is 202 street lamps from the 1920s and 30s in Los Angeles. And when asked, when I was talking to Chris Burden, uh, one of my curators said, well, you have to see this, you like outdoor sculpture, you have to see this thing in Los Angeles that Chris Burden's doing. He's collecting 1920s and 30s street lamps. He's, and he told me he was restoring each one of them, painting them gray, and he wanted them in a tight formation. So they went back to being colonnades because each street lamp is a version of a neoclassical column. They're fluted, in fact, up close, and they suggest for the street, there's some classical reference. They were public art, as he says, before they became public art. Each city actually designed their own lamp. So we love this idea of each city's lamp coming together. And I said, where would you like to put the sculpture? We looked at different places. And he said, well, of course, at the front of the museum. And I said, OK, let's consider that. So he made a proposal, uh, which for which made it twice as big. And this is what we worked out. And he put it in an arrangement with tall lamps in the center, with rows and colonnades, that it is a temple. Maybe it's a faux temple, but it is in the form of a temple. I like to joke that this is more real, of course, than a neoclassical facade. It's made with Los Angeles street lamps in 2008 by a Los Angeles artist of the place, of the time. And so there's a, a realness to it. For anyone who's asking, I have solar panels on the back uh, um, entry pavilion to power those lamps so we're not wasting electricity, which wouldn't be very modern. And they are, but they are open all night long. They're open to the public. There's free Wi-Fi. And there are Music, rogue music videos, photographs shot. When, when trustees asked me, because I was talking about the future of the world and digital and media technology as a big influence, they said, why are you spending so much money on giant physical sculptures then? 
And I said, well, you have to take your Facebook picture from somewhere. <laughs> that, that the fact that we live in a digital age does not change the sense that we still live in bodies and need a sense of place. And the museum is a wonderful sense of place, particularly everywhere, but particularly for me in, in, a, in a city like Los Angeles, which has as, speaks as many languages as any city in the world. It has the most diverse culture. And so this idea of a museum of everything, of everyone's culture, simultaneously in one place, is a wonderful mirror of the, of the present society, not even of, of, of exploration or of exotic places from which things are brought back, but basically of what's in Los Angeles present every day. We have the largest populations of Korean, everything from Koreans to Native Americans in Los Angeles. So I, I thought of the museum's relevance in that way. It became very easy to play with these ideas, maybe because ideas are all connected, coincidentally or otherwise. When Michael Heiser, a uh, contemporary artist, he's 69 years old, called me, and I knew him very well, worked with him at Dia Beacon, he said, I found the greatest rock in the world that I've ever found, he said, one of the great rocks in the world. His father was a geologist. He's often worked with art, with rocks his whole life. He'd been to this quarry in Los Angeles many, many times over 20 years. He said, it's, it, it's, it's the great rock. It's the Colossus of Memnon, or the Colossi of Memnon. And I was thinking, Colossi of Memnon, yes. He said, I can't get it up to my studio in Nevada easily because it's a mile high, but I could get it to the museum. Do you want it? And over the phone, I didn't skip a beat. I said, of course I want it. Uh, because I was thinking about public sculpture. He knew that. How could I put the museum outside? And what instantly popped to my mind is the history I knew of the Metropolitan Museum, having studied museums a little bit, and Cleopatra's Needle, which was placed in Central Park in the 1860s and arrived to great fanfare, people lining the streets, and this rock that was a symbol of culture, perhaps taken I don't know, won't say stolen, but taken from another place and brought this distance. You know, New York, Rome, Paris, London all had obelisks. New York had some of its own obelisk envy and wanted their own obelisk. So they grabbed Cleopatra's needle. It was put up to great fanfare. And I thought, well, you know, the world's changed. That, 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 that idea of having someone else's rock, uh, maybe the thing to do is to have our own rock. And Michael Heiser's rock would be that rock. So, uh, we worked out over five years the engineering, including the transport of a 350-ton piece of diorite granite from a quarry some 120 miles away as the crow flies, um, actually 70 miles away as the crow flies, about 120 miles in transport. It took three and a half years just to figure out how to build the transporter, which is 200, uh, 300 feet long with 212 wheels to get permissions to go through 23 counties, uh, sorry, four counties, 23 cities. And as we were talking about, you know, when the Egyptians moved their monoliths, they had slaves, but at least they didn't have weak streets with, you know, electrical wires and sewers and things like that. So we may have rubber tires and trucks, but the problem was how did you distribute the weight over relatively weak streets? And so this was the result of many years of work and engineering um, and we were talking about how the transport would be something of ceremony. Cultures have moved big rocks, again, since the beginning of time. This was a California artist moving a California rock. It moved over nine nights. There were tens of thousands of people lining the streets. There's actually a movie made about this. Uh, and I asked it to stop in front of Urban Light to sort of pay homage to the other big uh, public sculpture at the other side of the museum. And it was, there were people here at four in the morning, actually hundreds and hundreds of people sort of to see it arrive in that sense of ceremony. 
One of the things about Urban Light that I love is that it has a sense of ceremony. And in the 70s, when I went to school, we were in the 80s, we were all about tearing down institutions, like these institutions, bastions of, of conservatism, of, of, of colonialism, and we wanted to tear them down. That's one since I went into contemporary art, as much as I loved studying in Rome and loved European art, it's like we have to make things of our own time and place and not of a colonial outlook. But in that, as we used factories for museums, I think we also threw out the baby with the bathwater a little bit and lost that sense of ceremony. All art from its origins, from dance, from the movement. If you find a big rock in an ancient city, chances are it doesn't come from there. There was a movement, an expression of power, a ceremony, a uselessness in, in traditional terms, an artfulness uh, to that. And so I'm very interested in this idea of, of accessibility, honesty, new views, but also not to lose the sense that we, art is ceremony. It's a very special thing, a museum. Um, and so this levitated mass sculpture, uh, which Mike Heiser originally ma uh, wanted to make in 1969, and he broke a crane trying to move a rock that was a third the size, uh, was realized just a couple of years ago. And it's a magnificent thing. It's, it's actually, um, it's levitated mass. It's a, it's, it's, it is engineering. It's also a lot of yin-yang relationships, binary relationships. The natural form of the rock against the rectilinear form of the human, of this cut channel that you walk under, the channel which takes you below ground into a quieter space. And then, of course, you can see the rock in the sky. It's also a parable of looking. You can see, because it's pyramidal, you can walk all the way around it, see it from every side and the bottom as he said, whoever gets to see the bottom of sculpture. So if you want a sense of truth of the object, of observation, then you have to go underneath. And so this sculpture works in many, many ways. It is spectacular. And there is a critique of spectacle in our culture that we have to be careful of demagoguery and spectacle because it can, I don't know, influence us in ways that aren't <laughs> uh, that are unusual. Um, but I think what's beautiful is artists who work with spectacle but with a critique built in. Urban Light is, it's got its critique built in. It's made of contemporary street lamps. It's playful. This is also playful. And an idea of building in a critique. He also exposed the steel. A lot of people said, well, it's not levitated mass. Look at that steel bracket underneath it. Uh, if it was really levitating, he would have had space or put it just on the concrete. And of course, it's not really levitating. In fact, Christopher Knight at the LA Times asked, well, maybe it's not referring to the rock. Maybe it's referring to the, the levitated mass is, in fact, the thousands of people <laughs> who have come to see the museum and come to see art because of this uh, thing, this spectacle. And so there are lots of ways to read that, and I think uh, it's, it's a beautiful sculpture. It works in so many ways. And for me, again, marking the museum, marking the sense of place, as cultures have done forever, as the needle, the Cleopatra's needle did at the museum in Central Park, and this with a California artist and the California rock of the present time and place. Other ways of flipping things upside down or reconsidering them. Um, I was famous and hated, and people tried to fire me, in fact, when I suspended in the economic crisis of 2008 our, our cinema program to save money, supposedly, in the economic crisis. Knowing full well, when a reporter asked me, well, what if people, people are going to be incensed about this because this is an, a cinema town and you're the museum? And I said, yes, but the only program in the entire museum that does not have philanthropic support is one. It's in Los Angeles, it's the cinema program. We need to rebuild it from scratch. 
we can do that. We can make it bigger than it was, better, <laughs> faster, more audiences, but we have to rebuild it, and there are times to rebuild. And Marty Scorsese wrote me a letter. <laughs> I'm deeply, de deeply disturbed. He said he wants to put that on his tombstone. I called him. We had a nice meeting in New York. He came to LACMA. We had a public conversation, and it really, this sort of looking in the mirror about why doesn't LA support the arts, why doesn't it support its own art of cinema in a philanthropic way, has resulted in extraordinary things. We rebuilt our screening program, working with another organization, Film Independent, doubled its, um, its screenings, its attendance, and made a deal with the Academy uh, of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences to create a museum in the old 1939 May Company building with an addition of a thousand-seat theater designed by Renzo Piano, which will be open in 2017-18. And this was another way of thinking differently what general or encyclopedic museum would have cinema as the highest art along with everything else. Uh, as I said, if the Egyptians had stone, um, in Los Angeles we have the celluloid of film, these are monumental arts, and why shouldn't film take its place very directly, centrally, front and, cen front and center rather, uh, at the General Museum. And this is a separate museum run by the Academy, but where we'll share tickets, and obviously the audience's experience is going to be of a great presence of cinema in the general consideration of our history. Just to say again that how modernism, how, how thinking over the 20th century has changed our view of what's possible. I don't know how many people here really have thought about the fact that the white box we see for art, for contemporary art especially, but also that we've now put our classical art in, um, that kind of plain modernist white box, is a very re recent invention. In fact, even galleries in New York were very rough walls. They might have been painted white, but that clean white wall that we see everything on now is a few decades old, if that. And so many experiments have taken place to say that that, that, that is a coded frame, that white wall, and there are many examples, uh, and, and this was something that I learned in my own life, not just by seeing what Charles Moore did to the Iran ironic columns, but when I became deputy director of the Guggenheim and started to study the history of the Guggenheim, of Hilaribe, but of Peggy Guggenheim, this is the, her Art of the Century Gallery, this is a reconstruction of the famous Kiesler designed Art of the Century Gallery with curved walls, crazy furniture, paintings projected from the walls. It's not as if modern art is about the purity of frame. It wasn't. There were many experiments. This is one side, and maybe you'd say, well, this is biased towards surrealism. But Hilary Bay herself, in showing the work of Mondrian and Kandinsky, uh, this is the cousin, uh, Solomon Guggenheim, which was Peggy Guggenheim's cousin. Hilib Ribe was the director and his collaborator, made this gallery, the first gallery for the Solomon R. Guggenheim, what became the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum. This is Kandinsky's, hung close to the floor in giant frames, and what you can't see or smell is the music of Bach wafting through the air with incense, <laughs> which led her <laughs> to Frank Lloyd Wright to create an environment that was quite unusual. Uh, cosmically relevant in its spiral and its dome, uh, and I got to work there and work with artists like Dan Flavin, an artist working in light, who to reopen the restoration of the Guggenheim did this beautiful installation to highlight the architecture and work within it. I then invited other architects, in this case Zaha Hadid, um, uh, who's very interested in, uh, she's Iranian, uh, works in London as you probably know, but 
obsessed with the Russian avant-garde, and she was hired, I hired her to, to develop the installation for the Russian avant-garde exhibition. She hung paintings on plexiglass, she put uh, images on the floor, uh, she used historical reconstructions in parallel with her own constructions, and created an incredibly lively and uh, energetic environment in which to see these works. And got to, I got to work with Frank Gehry on the Guggenheim Bilbao, riffing off the Guggenheim New York and what museums could be in shape and form, and also what role they could play in society. The idea was that this museum would transform the city of Bilbao, and it has indeed as a landmark um, unusual shapes, in which contemporary art does thrive, especially in the curvilinear spaces as they commission artists to work in those spaces. There are also rectilinear galleries you can see on the right, juxtaposing different kinds of spaces. But it, the, the simple just juxtaposition of old and new is a very powerful image in Bilbao and has served the city well. This is Richard Serra and the big galleries, things you can only do. Uh, going back further, when I was at Williams College, the project I worked on uh, probably most deeply was the conversion of a factory, a 28 building factory that was out of business, the formal textile and then a Sprague electric plant, which has now become uh, a museum of contemporary art with spaces unlike uh, any other museum. There are 600,000 square feet in the building. Not all of it has even been finished. This is a Rauschenberg quarter mile long painting, which would be difficult to exhibit at the Ashmolean or, or even at, at Oxford Modern. Uh, there are spaces like this that allow for experiences that are different. This is just to open the door to thinking about space and experience differently, uh, about artists working in those spaces. Um, Another space of that time was the, the, what was the MOCA, the Temporary Contemporary, which was again a police garage converted, and at DIA there was a warehouse converted. That line of thinking, this reuse of old buildings, um, and this is what's possible, this is Diana Thader in the museum at DIA Chelsea in, on 22nd Street using video. We don't know what the future looks like. This is an artist in Los Angeles who's not even using video in a box. It's not even in a frame. There's no place to sit. Uh, this video is projected into space, into architecture, and as you move around it and walk through the video, it looks completely different from every angle. It, it's almost a Baroque use of, of uh, video in space. The future may look like this. Artists, we may need museums that can do this. These experiments were, in turn, uh, in part inspired by artists again. Artists who, I don't know if there were artists involved in the founding of this museum, but certainly in New York at the Metropolitan, there were artists involved in founding the museum. And artists have played a strong role throughout history in helping to frame and found, this is Donald Judd's converted army base uh, in Marfa, Texas, which I always say, if there is a temple or a Parthenon uh, in America, it's these two former artillery sheds which, with 100 aluminum boxes by Donald Judd in the desert. The light and the space is unbelievable. They have a power, I think, that I've only seen in ancient architecture. And this completely different way also of thinking about buildings. In this case, he found a building, he made the art, and then he adjusted the building to fit the art in an art and architecture relationship that I think is so important that is site-specific, even if it's reusing buildings. Dan Flavin also reused a former Baptist church and firehouse into what I think is the most beautiful museum per square inch that I've ever been in, um, using fluorescent light. And artists of the 60s also, I'm talking about things that inspired me to think about time, space, museums, and the presentation of art differently. I said art wasn't always in a museum. It may not always be again. 
Uh, and there are many examples where artists moved outside the museum, particularly in the 60s. This is Michael Heiser in 1969 carving two channels in the Nevada desert. You see it on the lower right in a sculpture called Double Negative. It's 800 feet long, the size of the Empire State Building, tilted down, um, and it's both negative and positive because the remnants of the cut are, are there in the sand that's fallen, and it's a monumental absence, negative, in the land on a scale that probably wasn't seen since ancient times. So there's an artist thinking, and he thinks a lot, even levitated mass, about both an ancient sensibility and a modern one, and the fact that we are still ancient beings. We still have aspects of our current civilization that goes back to beginnings, as well as we are a society of engineering, of, of modernity in so many other ways. Um, he was also trying to invent a new language of monumentality, and one of the things I like to note is the only two really big public sculptures akin to what might have been commissioned in ancient times in the United States recently are the Vietnam War Memorial, and the uh, World Trade Center uh, uh, Memorial, both of which have uh, adopted Michael Heiser's language of negative space. They're both monuments that are cut in absences. Uh, in those cases, memorially, Heiser not so much as just a memorial, but that language of a monumental absence is again a complete inversion, a way to think about something monumental in a 21st century. Or thinking about Walter de Maria's. Has anybody been to Walter de Maria's lightning field in New Mexico? You arrive in the flat Nevada, uh, New Mexico desert. In the middle of the day, you see nothing but mountains on the edge. If you look very closely in this photograph, you can see what are 400 stainless steel poles placed in a grid a mile by a kilometer, which are invisible during the high noon because they're reflective. But in the sunrise and sunset, they, it's like God flips the switch. They knit together the sky and the land, might my size to that of nature, if you will. Um, and it's called the lightning field because they're all lightning rods and this, these lightning rods literally har harness the light of the sky uh, into sculpture. It's not a picture of nature. It's something that channels. It's a measuring device that channels the experience of nature. Um, I could talk about 18th century painting in relation to this picture, but, uh, and, and romanticism as, as well, but um, it's, it's a completely different way of seeing, and of course it's outside the museum again, in this case landscape, as, as Robert Smithson did in 1970 following uh, Michael Heiser's example in making the spiral jetty in the Great Salt Lake of Utah which actually is sometimes visible and sometimes invisible as the water rises and falls in the Salt Lake because there's no outlet, it's, a, it's an inner lake. And the crystals, the salt crystals that form on the rocks in microcosm are indeed spirals. The spiral also refers to the film he made. It's a, um, he made a film about this at the same time and of course the reel of film is a spiral as well. So there's something both primordial, almost of dinosaur age of these images, as well as um, something super modern. And just to end, the land art project, or he doesn't like to call it land art, that's still ongoing is James Terrell's Roden Crater, the conversion of a volcano, extinct volcano, beginning in 1974, he's still not finished. In fact, the first thing he had to do was buy a ranch, hence the cow. Real American art requires ranching, something I've <laughs> found uh, by working with a lot of these artists who work out west, that you have to become a rancher. And Terrell is creating perhaps one of the most extraordinary monuments, 
ever attempted by a human being. The crater is a, a quarter mile in its diameter, 800 feet uh, tall. I think it's almost three quarters of a mile in its full length. It has a series of chambers and tunnels. This is looking up an 800 foot long tunnel um, into the sky, into an aperture of the sky. Uh, that is a circle when you go up it and becomes a very elongated ellipse. This is the proverbial stairway to the heavens. Um, and it's a monument, but it's a monument in a different sense. It's not a monument to wars or history. What happens in James Terrell's Roden Crater is that your perception is bent, literally. He will tell you that his medium is not the materials he's working with, the crater, sheetrock, architecture, or stairs, but your perception, which is extremely malleable. The idea that I can see a circle that becomes an ellipse from a different point of view, that the sky looks one shape and one color when I'm looking at it this way, or if I go into the bowl of the crater, the sky becomes a dome rather than a flat pancake. We're, all our perception is malleable. In fact, our whole thinking about history is based on a subjectivity which is uniquely human, physiognomic. It has to do with how big we are, how fast we move, how we, how we understand our universe from our particular place. Everything is particular. Every point of view. When I say re-envisioning the museum from the Pacific, it's that, and I say this a lot, from Los Angeles, Europe is further away. It's not that it doesn't exist in a worldview, but like perspective, it's further away. Ancient Americas are closer. Asia's closer. And so there's this sense that we exist in any point of view and we look out and we form a worldview. That's what a museum is. It's, it's, it's not objective in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and once you know that, you can play with it, as Robert Irwin did in this example at the San Diego Museum of Modern Art. Who builds a museum with a view of the Pacific Ocean? What art can compete with that? So usually they block up the windows. <laughs> and Robert Irwin came in, and one of the genius, most beautiful artworks I've ever seen, he poked holes in the museum. Those are simply cutouts through the window, which let light and air, real air and wind into the museum, and of course frame the ocean as a picture and ask the question about the frame of the museum in relation to nature. He used that trick when he helped me design Dia Beacon. These are factory windows that have obscure glass. You know, it's hard. You can't put a picture a window to nature in a museum. It's to compete with nature is so difficult, but if you're closed in with no windows, you feel claustrophobic. Erwin solves the problem with this permeable membrane in renovating this 300,000-square-foot uh, 300, warehouse that I found truly from flying my airplane low on the Hudson River and looking down and seeing all those north-facing skylights and thinking about traditional British buildings and museums, about North Light artist studios, uh, and then converted, with Robert Irwin's help, converted that into a museum. He wanted the gardens that to be part of the museum, so the artwork in nature, uh, gardens to connect so you're inside and outside, and then large open spaces. In fact, we made a decision to use no electric light other than emergency lights so that, like a park, it closes at dusk. Uh, and so that changing natural light is constantly playing with our image of the space and how we look at art. That subjectivity of light is equally important in sensing that things change. So finally, I would just end with what I'm proposing currently in Los Angeles, which is now being discussed civically and otherwise, um, for which I still have to raise a lot of money. Um, but I started thinking about what a museum could be. What if the museum were transparent? instead of that block of stone. So 
so people could see in it. What if a museum, instead of being a fixed collection, even our permanent collections, again, I wouldn't try this at the Ashmolean, those things weigh a lot. But at LACMA, we don't have so many heavy Roman sculptures. Uh, what if the museum could continually be rotated to tell stories about history from constantly changing narratives and points of view across time and history, uh, asking questions about chronology, about geography, about different cultures, and, and what if we could have that Los Angeles street life not give up the ceremony, but end up in a very deeply contemplative place on the inside. Um, what if we imagine, and it's true, so many, many museums have already done this, but uh, are, keep adapting our museum for kids and families, uh, which didn't always visit museums when they were designed as neoclassical facades. And what if even we could create a building that created more energy than it used, because museums are energy hogs? What if we just started flipping a lot of these assumptions around or expectations, what it would it create? I commissioned Peter Zumtor when I first got to LACMA. Uh, you, I don't know if you know his work. He's a Pritzker Prize winner. He's built two museums. One is in uh, Bregenz in Austria. One is in, uh, Col in Cologne, the Columba Museum. And he has a special talent for working with sites and teasing out these qualities. He's a modernist, but he's a modernist that has a sense of atmosphere and feeling. He critiques the rational all the time with, this sense, with the sensations of emotion, color, light, shadow, as he calls it. And so we started with basic principles instead of what the building looked like. I didn't care what the building looked like. I just wanted to know how it functioned and how it felt. It had to be completely transparent. As I said, you know, museums, libraries, and banks in the 19th century all wanted to be stone facades of solidity. So you know, whatever was there was protected. Libraries and museums have stuck with their buildings because they're historic. Banks have abandoned them and become transparent uh, because they know that the public needs to trust them, and so they have to be transparent, they have to invite new people in. So that's the idea. Could the museum be entirely transparent, accessible, horizontal, all good museums, I think, are horizontal, so is the desert in California, um, and organic in shape. One of the decisions that Peter made to express what I was thinking about is that the museum has no flat facade. It's all curves. Why? And there's no one entrance. Why? One, there's no particular, it has no front, but more importantly, as he said, it has no back. There's no culture in the back. You can approach the museum from any side, and so everything is given a kind of equality of thinking, of approach, and it is intended to be contemplative in a traditional sense on its interior. It's intended to be efficient with solar panels. Uh, I will, I just wanted to, I have one fly through of just the current rendition of what Um, this is just Wilshire Boulevard. As you're approaching the museum, the idea, of course, is at night it would be especially beautiful because you would not only see art, but people in the museum. People say, well, what about the light? But light on north sides under cover behind glass is easily protected. And over half of our collection, stone sculpture, furniture, Greek vases, glass, has no problem with south light. It can be right on the street, which is the plan. And behind those walls are study centers with classrooms that are, can be literally used as classrooms uh, and galleries inside. And the idea is you can walk underneath uh, at 7 in the morning walking your dog after a dinner or a movie and look into art exhibitions. Uh, and I will just uh, end with a couple of uh, last slides. Uh, I don't <coughs> even know how to do this. Uh, play animations. Oh. Well, you know what? 
play. I don't know where the play is. That's okay. You want to hit play. Um, one of the things we're doing recently now is celebrating the 50th anniversary of art and technology, which is an, a, an, a, an effort to bring artists together with scientists across disciplines in 1970. Uh, very shocking picture on the left. All the artists were white men. <laughs> but famous ones, Andy Warhol, Robert Rauschenberg. Uh, this was the, one of the images that was created for it. We've re-envisioned that. Here's Andy Warhol with his lenticulars of sunflowers. And actually taken the idea of the library being the core of the museum that few people use as much anymore. We didn't, everybody every year says, why can't you get rid of the library? It costs so much money. Do people really use books? And I said, no, 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 we need the books. We're not ready to get rid of them. But what if we reimagined the library as a um, tech center? like an iPhone genius, an, an Apple genius lab, and people could come for tech support, and we can invite artists and other people, because the library, the library is the core of that <coughs> whole technological world of cyberspace. It's really the library. So we've rebuilt on the cheap our library with some help from Google and NVIDIA and other companies, and now it is an art and tech lab where artists uh, come and work on projects with scientists, curators, and you can also get help on how to use your iPhone if you're on the staff. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what the future is? And I think that's the idea. We're investing in this as a laboratory, again, leaning on artists who have a vision of what the future might be or different ways of looking at things to help us keep thinking, keep re-envisioning, and to imagine that in Los Angeles, we can be as a whole museum, a laboratory for thinking about culture and the framing device we call museum. Thank you very much.